Good morning, everybody. Good morning. We've been working through chapter 13, which is talking about models of salvation. Um, we have some books here and there spread around. We can share a little bit as we go. I've got a little bit of slides also to show you. But specifically last week, uh, we had a member sitting here at the table, and he asked us, so how are you saved then? How, how does God save you? That was the question that was asked. And I told him that this coming week we were going to talk about it and answer the question. And I said, make sure you come back. He's not here. <laughs> so that's okay. But I, he, you know, he can, uh, God works all around. So it's not a big deal. But point being, the, the question that we are trying to answer today, if this will work, I have this problem every week. There we go. What must I do to be healed? Can y'all see that? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the question we're asking today. What must I do to be healed? Because just to recap, we talked about a legal model of salvation, a legal model of God, and the emphasis on forgiveness. Like, that's the focus. What do I have to do to be forgiven? But we're learning of a different model of God, a healing model, a different picture of God where the focus is on healing, character transformation, growth. What must I do to be healed? So for those of you who have your books, if you want to jump to page 176, we're going to read a verse in chat in Luke chapter 6, verse 47 through 48. And the emphasis is that Jesus gives us three basic steps in the following passage. The Bible says, Whoever comes to me and hears my and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. So basic three, three basic steps that the author of the Sherwood study here is outlining. Step one would be come, you come to Jesus. Step two would be hear, you carefully listen to what he says. And step three would be do. You cooperate, you do the best you can, that Christ tells you to do. Well, that all sounds really good, doesn't it? How do you do that? How does that make sense? How do you actually apply that in our lives? <coughs> so, let's ask that question out to the room. How do you do that? How do you apply that to your life? How do you do what Jesus tells you to do? Do you pick up the phone and ask Jesus, and he gives you an answer? Joe. It has a lot to do with surrendering. <clears throat> we got to get out of our own selves. Gotta, you know, we got to turn our will over. And that's the biggest challenge because we're selfish individuals. We give our will, we turn our will over to a, a higher power, which is God or Christ. Well said. And it's not easy. Yeah, well said. Well said. Anybody else? Because, because again, we like to try to wrestle because there's like all kinds of like you know sayings that people say. Let go, let God, Jesus take the wheel, all these different things. And they sound good, right? But, I mean, how does that actually work? How do you actually do that? How does that make sense? How do you act it out in your day-to-day -day life? Any other ideas, Mark? In my mind, and I'm learning this, sure. you know, <laughs> you and me both. 52 years of going to church, is, is that it's, 
it's all about stepping back and trying to be kind to the person you're dealing with, even though you may be inside hurting, inside, you know, you, you, you want to be positive, and honestly, if you really do turn it over to God, it's a positive, you know, you will be positive. Right. And if you don't, it shows in your verbiage, it shows in how you interact. Yeah. Seemingly negative, it can come out. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. There's um, an interesting quote I heard, and I don't know exactly where it was from, but it's pretty profound. And it goes something like the way we experience God's love vertically, right, is horizontally through our relationships with each other. We experience God's love this way by it acting out and manifesting through relationships this way. In other words, if you get into that practice of truth-telling, you experience God's love vertically when you tell the truth to another person and they accept you. And you go, wow. And your heart opens like, I just told somebody a, a dirty secret. And they were still buddies. They still love me. And that is where, because people say God is love. God's love is unconditional. How do you experience that? By experiencing unconditional this way. That's how you're able to really understand what that means. Okay, That's where things really get changing. And that actually brings us into our first step that the author brings out now what i'm going to do is the author here in this book brings out three basic steps but i'm actually going to tie in the 12 steps of recovery into this whole process and we're going to kind of go through it a little bit as we go through this this chapter but he said step one would be we have to confess right we have to admit that we have a problem right step one admit you are powerless over your unwanted behaviors whatever that is you decide First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What, is that, what does that mean? To cleanse you from unrighteousness is a big fancy word that basically means... Somebody? What does that mean to you? Sin. Sins? Yeah. Unwanted behaviors, essentially, right? Proverbs has this cool verse that talks about uh, disclosing sins and unwanted behaviors to each other because in that process is healing. There's healing in that process. Anybody have any experience with this idea that you want to share? Anybody comfortable sharing? Anything like that? Just a quick thought. Sure. Um, I think that s- sentence on, on the slide right there not only talks about the behaviors in in your life but since you can't control other people it gives you an open door to pray for them Mm -hmm. and 
if God gives you the opportunity, help them. Right. So right. it's not just thinking about you. Right. It's how many places, how many people, right. your circle of influence, as we said. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And, and I think it's important too, all right, um, you know, there's a, the steps that come from certain programs and, and this step one also has another part, your life became unmanageable. Mm -hmm. And when your life becomes unmanageable, your powerlessness starts affecting everything. Uh, because you're, because that addiction or that affliction or disease or whatever you want to call it, is controlling your every moment and even everything as simple as what your normal daily routine to your job to other major decisions and major life things, you're, you're now unmanageable and you're just, you have, regardless what you do, it's going to get messed up because you're living a lie about your addiction. Thanks for sharing. So there's the idea of it, we, we like to apply when we talk about God to, like I, like I said before, the healing model, the healing lens, and we compare it to a doctor, our relationships to a doctor. Generally speaking, if you are sick and you have a fever, when do you go to the doctor? when your fever becomes unmanageable. Essentially, when your fever gets so high that you, you're just like, I can't even function right now. The chills are so bad. My headache is freaking splitting my brain. And that's when you go to the doctor, to Joe's point. Likewise, Jesus talks about the same thing when it comes to our one of like in terms of like our behavior. Sin is another word for that, selfishness. Jesus says, they that are whole or healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick need a physician, right? And in addition to, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Greek word salvation. Or, I'm sorry, the word salvation coming from the Greek, which means sozo, which is what? What does sozo mean? Anybody remember? To be healed, to be made well, literally to save from death. That's what salvation means. So Jesus also says in another place, the Bible says, trust in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. In other words, sozo, healed, be made well. Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out, John 6, 37. What's that mean? Go to your doctor, you got a splitting headache. Do you, does anybody here expect a doctor to reject you if you're sick and needing healing? Does anybody think that? They shouldn't. They shouldn't, exactly. Yet, how many of us approach God with this idea that he'll reject me if I don't do the right thing? He'll reject me if I don't ask for forgiveness the right way. He'll reject me if I don't. He'll reject me if I make him mad. How many of us have approached God in that way? Thoughts? Every day. Thanks for hearing. Thanks for your honesty. Yeah. It's just... Just this morning, just now, when I got here early, that I realized you can actually talk to God like I might talk to one of you. Yeah, yeah. And that picture with God holding the earth in his hand and he's up here, that really isn't a good interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to open up to you guys a little bit, to be, to be honest, I love tattoos. No problems there. I would love to get a tattoo on my arm. Would, is that okay in God's eyes? Should I do that though? What if I, I wrestle with that to this day. And to be honest with you, that's 
one of the main reasons why I haven't got one yet. I got a tattoo on my back. Yeah, but no one else can see that. That's not as bad, right? But think about it. Man, I've had a, a desire in my mind to have like this arm done for years. Ask Sarah about it. Man, I've got drawings all over the place. <laughs> but like, if I do, does that somehow disqualify me? So I still every day wrestle Joe with the same idea. Because it's it's like, well, like Sarah and I were talking, if you're if you were taught and raised to have a view of God that's legal, behavior based, and it's really like those like those are deep trenches. Those are deep. And to go through to work through that healing. Of course I'm gonna go somewhere where I shouldn't, but I'm learning in my class we're doing the book of Romans and learning so much through that and we're learning as Romans being a trial against human beings. Interesting. Really cool. It's an awesome way of learning. But you know, to go by what you're saying, you know, once you start reading, you see where God loves the Gentile, God loves the Jew, God loves the Greek, God loves the Roman. There's no one He doesn't love. Yeah, no one. Right. And right. you know, it, it's just it, it, it's what our faith is. It's not whether you know, if, if I were to reject, if I were to be earthly and reject people with tattoos, I would have almost no friends. Right. To be clear, you don't actually think that, right? What's that? That you would be unacceptable to God if you got a tattoo. <clears throat> to be clear, sometimes I do. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Yeah, that is yeah, that is a thing that I still wrestle with. Martin? I was following the Sabbath school lesson this week. Okay. And uh, <laughs> they had us, uh, as part of Friday's lesson, <laughs> to read the last chapter of Step to Christ. I don't get that. Okay. And and it, I've read that several times in my years past, but this time it really spoke to me, especially in my current situation. And it's all about the other people. It's mm. not about you yep. mm. and your wants. Mm. It's about how you portray Jesus to other people. Mm. And to some people, I would almost argue that it would be a stumbling block. Oh, no solve. doubt. No doubt. You know, and, and it really does kind of, I don't know, it, it just kind of, you know, spends, you know, a lot of your self-evaluation and, and how you deal with other things. It, it's, you know, you're supposed to be cheerful in times that are awful because you've had a lot of flowers along your way. Right. Don't concentrate on the thorns you're stepping through. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. So it's a, it's a beautiful chapter if you uh, ever get a chance. I'll check it out. That's good. So step two. Believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. Can you repeat that? Believe that a power oh. greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. The idea that Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Same idea. People who are sick don't need a doctor, but those who are unhealthy, right? People who are not sick. But if we won't come to Jesus, then can he help us? No. If you don't go to the doctor, he can't heal you. You don't make that step to say, I need help from someone more powerful than me to help me out of this. In my work, uh, a lot of people, we, we like to throw around the phrase, if I ask a question to somebody or a question's asking, you don't know the answer to, the answer is, you gotta talk to someone smarter than me. Because like, 
You know, I'm up against the wall here. I can't go any further. I'm powerless to move forward. And so when we go to Jesus and we kind of we kind of talk about this idea, you're surrendering. You're saying, I need help. I don't. I don't. You know, here's my problem. I need help. I don't know what to do. That's step two. What does that show about your character? A willingness to listen. Essentially, a willingness to listen. A willingness to try. Yes, you may. Um, oftentimes, people won't ask for help until they're drowning. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, a lot of times you're at your wit's end before you say, I can't. Yep. Yeah, I think they call that rock bottom. Some of them don't even realize it until they're in the hospital already waking up. <laughs> True that, Sarah. I think sometimes, you know, like to lower your point, the idea that, you know, we wait until, like, we don't have any other options, right? I think it's often based on the idea that, like, the fear of rejection, right, for sharing or asking for help or whatever it is, right, is greater than your desire to get help at that point. And so it really comes down to the fear or the lack of understanding of like how love actually works, right? Because mm -hmm. if you have confidence that whoever you're gonna go ask for help from is not gonna reject you, you're gonna ask a lot sooner, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's a bigger issue than just like, yeah, I think, I think it's understanding of like what you believe love actually is mm -hmm. and how somebody that's being loving so last week, I shared a slide that Derek put together that talked about lies, step one. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust leads to, I think it's acts of selfishness? Fear. Fear, Fear and selfishness. selfishness. Yeah. Fear and selfishness leads to behaviors yeah. to protect yourself. And behaviors that can protect yourself lead to a warped character damage. Mind, I believe that was the step four down through. And it all stems from that, yeah, lies believed. So if I grew up in a home where I was told never to talk about something. Mm. Never share that. Mm -mm. You'll embarrass yourself if you do. Something like that. Mm. So, you, so you grow up in a home like that. Well then, that thing happens in your life. Right? How, how, now you believe this lie that people will reject you if you tell them that. How apt are you going <laughs> to... I'm unmanageable, I need help, but I can't talk to anybody because the last thing I want to do is be rejected. Right. <laughs> so you keep it here, but your, your life still goes to chaos. So you go to step three. You make a decision to turn your life over to the care of God. Again, how do we, how do we experience God's care? From the care we experience this way. This is how we experience God's care. And I tell you right now that if anybody here has ever been talking to a friend or a group of people or a counselor or a trusted you know, mentor and you share something and that lie, that if you share that you'll be rejected, actually doesn't actually happen and you realize that well, that's not actually true. You know, there's people in my life that know things about me that I swear I would go to my grave knowing. One of those persons is my wife. And she still 
accepts me. When I believed my whole life, if my wife ever knew this about me, I'd be kicked out on the street. And I should have been kicked out on the street. That's the fact. But I experienced God's care and acceptance this way. And not just through her, but through many other relationships as well. What happens when you make a decision to surrender your will, is a way to, to word that, to turn your life over to the care of someone else? What happens when you do that? You go to the doctor, and I'm sick, I had surgery on my knee, broke my thumb, you know, like, and the doctor says, what do I do to get better? What do I do to get better, right? Not listen to him. Not listen to him. The doctor gives you a couple things to do, Gives you some tasks to do, right? And you may not understand why should why would I why do I need to do that? I don't understand why I need to do that. But the doctor says just trust the process. This will help you. Trust the process, even if you don't understand it. So that's what happens when we turn over our will to the care of God or to the care of other people. Anybody else have any thoughts or experience with this idea? Also, it frees you. Say more about that. It frees you from yourself. Um, you're able to, when I turn my will over to care of God, um, you know, I'm, again, being a human being, we have selfish tendencies. But when I'm doing it and I'm doing it right, I, I, the weight is off my shoulders. And, you know, you know, God definitely gives us a defined choice. You know, I use an example. If you're driving down the road, there's a curve. You know, you use, you're, Jesus, take the wheel. Oh, God's going to make sure I'm going to... No, God gives us the ability to make that decision. Okay. Am I going to turn the wheel or am I going to head for that tree? And, that, and, that's, a, and, that, and that's, the, that's a whole lot about turning life over to care of God because we're now listening to God and we're listening to the choices that we can make, that we have to make or should make. You know, we're taking out of ourselves. No, I'm going to keep going until I hit that tree. God's like, oh, yeah, you don't have to do that. You can turn the wheel too, but you've got to do it. So it, it frees you to think differently, um, and it frees you to op open your mind to ideas and just listen to something other than yourself, because I got here with my own decisions. Right. Okay. It's time to let other people or other God not do my thinking for me, but to open my mind to other ideas and thinking. See, unwanted behavior and unwanted behavior, sin, selfishness, thrives in isolation. It loves isolation. Satan loves isolation. If he can keep you isolated, if he can keep you believing lies about other people and about yourself, keep you closed in and locked up, chained, right, to a, to a dungeon of distorted reality. There's no growth there. There's no healing there. Your, your isolation. You're isolated, right? Healing thrives in community, in connection with others, in openness and vulnerability. The one thing that is the most scary that most of us deal with, who've ever been wounded or shamed growing up, being vulnerable. But part of our church, Collective Journey, we have a section in there where it's like we grow relationships with empathy and vulnerability, like we're trying to cultivate that. Empathy and vulnerability. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Is it okay? Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that at all. But also at the same time, we need to apply wisdom and who is it safe to, to come to, like not just 
some people are not safe to reveal your deepest, yes. darkest, whatever. So, yes. like, you know, it's always going to take, you know, a step of faith. Yep. But you don't just take a step of faith, like, out in front of traffic. You know, right. you've got to be wise, too, at the yeah. same time. There's a cool term to describe what you're talking about. It's called a redemptive risk. A redemptive risk. So you, within yourself, you choose to take a small risk that has the potential to be hurt. This could go bad, but it could go good. It's not huge, it's just a little risk. And if that person receives you, it's redemptive, it's restorative, it's healing, right? But if something bad happens as a result, Unfortunately, if you're wounded, like I am, and most of us are probably, you tend to say, see, there is something wrong with me. It just reinforces this problem within you, right? But a lot of times you can say, well, maybe not. That's, that wasn't the right person to go talk to, right? If you look at the third paragraph here on page 177 for us to have a book, the top word, the word at the beginning of the paragraph is finally, right? This would be like step three. We must do what our physician prescribes. Everyone wants to be well, but some don't want to do what the doctor says. The doctor may say they need a little surgery, they may need to get some exercise or to take some medicine in order for them to get well. We have to cooperate. We have to cooperate. If we refuse to do what the doctor prescribes, can we expect to get well? Can God save a cheater? Can a cheater be saved? Sure. Can a cheater be saved? Can the doctor heal a cheater? These are all trick questions. The answer is no. If you go to the doctor and the doctor said, here's what you need to do to get well, and you cheat, are you going to get well? You say you're taking the meds when you're actually not. You say you're doing the exercises when you're actually not. You're missing appointments. You're cheating on what's being prescribed. That's interesting to think about. So step four, make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. This is when it gets deep. This is when it starts hurting. This is when the doctor says, here's what you need to do. Here's the prescriptions that take place. Why? The Bible says you should know the truth and the truth will set you free. Psychiatrist N. Scott Peck says, mental health, healing, recovery is a commitment to reality at all costs. But I want to make a fearless moral inventory of somebody else that makes me mad. <laughs> That's what we end up doing most of the time. Here's all the things that are wrong with you. Sarah. Also, you know, a lot of times, right, you force somebody to go to the doctor. Are they likely to go and do what they're supposed to be doing? Right. Not likely, right? Not so likely. they have to make that choice for themselves. So I think it's, it's not the actual, like, going to the doctor, right, that's actually the fix. It's following what you're supposed to do after you leave the doctor. 
Paul talks about in the New Testament, and I don't know the, the, the chat book off the top of my head, but he said, you know, um, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. And I think everyone in this room can relate to that. Man, I, I don't want to do that anymore. But I, but I did it again. Pick your poison. So the point of this idea of making a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself is to begin the process of self-awareness. When we're able to understand what has happened in our lives that has led us to behave in certain ways, we go through this process, it starts making those connections. You could say, ah, now I know why I do what I do because something that happened back then. You know, a story from my life when I was a kid all right, let me, let me start today. I could be sitting in the house today. This could happen today. I'm sitting in the house and I'm on the couch and I'm just chilling. Maybe I'm reading a book. Maybe I'm checking Facebook. Maybe I'm playing a video game. I'm just chilling. And Sarah walks in from the sunroom door. She's out, walks in, boom, slams the door shut. I, just like that, become hypervigilant. My heart spikes. My anxiety goes up. And I'm going, and I immediately put down whatever I'm doing. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? That happens to this day. Why do I do the things that I do? I don't want to do that. I don't want to have that reaction, but I keep having that reaction. Is it because Sarah's coming in with a machete and she's going to come after me? Depends on the day, but not seriously. <laughs> no, because when I was 10 or 9, I could be sitting in the house doing nothing. And my dad walked in, slammed the door, and would scream at the top of his lungs, my name, and I would get in severe trouble. And that happened every day. And the worst times was when dad came home drunk and then would do that. So now here I am, 38. Why do I do what I do when I don't want to do that? Because that's not healed in me. That's called a limbic trigger. There's a part in my brain that automatically responds. And I have to take a couple really deep breaths. And I gotta remind myself that that's not my dad, that it's a different situation. I gotta take a serious moral and a fearless moral inventory of myself. Because before getting any kind of healing, before doing this, Sarah would walk into the kitchen and call my name. Hey, Charlie, how do you think I responded? I'm already in a feared heightened state. How do you think I would respond to her? With compassion, openness, and curiosity? What? Fear, defensiveness, acts of selfishness, right? Lies, beliefs, breaks the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust leads to fear and selfishness. See how that goes? Exactly. Step five. We admit to God, yourself, and others the exact nature of your wrongs. What? No, I'm not doing that. But why do we do that? Why the exact nature? Why the detail? Why? Well, if you go to a doctor and say, just like, yeah, I'm not feeling that well. And that doesn't give the doctor much to work with. Yeah. So if you're specific about your wrongs, then you know what to zero in on. There you go. <clears throat> Seth and then Mark. Um. Be honest with yourself before you can be honest with others. Okay, well said. Mm -hmm. Mark? I was just going to say that as well. You got to be honest with your surgeon or with your doctor and say, hey, this is what's wrong. This is my pattern of behavior. This is what has led up to this. 
and then the doctor can give you an accurate diagnosis. Without that, and, and see, pride, it was Satan's first, first issue. And it's really all of our first issue coming out of the womb. So you can't, I uh, can't remember the name of the book, it might come to me, but when we're, we'll go back to the idea you can't experience God's love this way unless you experience it this way. Okay, here's the truth. You cannot experience love this way if you are not honest and truthful because the other person doesn't have all the information which means the way they're loving you is not based in truth and reality. It's not based with having all of the information. It's based with just the little bit that you gave them, but you're still holding something back. So you're really not experiencing authentic or true unconditional love and acceptance. Does that make sense? Is that, anybody tracking with me with that idea? If I only give you 50% of the information and you're loving and accepting me, are you really, am I really experiencing love and acceptance? No. Seth, oh, sorry, Sarah. Uh, well, I mean, you, you know, the person who's not sharing all the information knows that, right? Like, they're like, the idea of if I shared everything, right, that person wouldn't accept me. And so they always have that, like, eh, like, they don't really accept me, right, in reality. And then the person who is being given partial information is, Regardless of whether you realize it or not, you are your you know, intuition is going to know, mm. right? Whether you're receiving all of that person or not. Mm. Right? To some level. Um, and if you know, the closer you are in a relationship, right, the more you're going to experience that and then it creates dissonance within that person, right? And all kinds yeah. of, of negative things. Yeah. So like it hurts both of the people in an effort to Somebody safe, right? Actually, creates harm. Yeah, Louise, you had a comment. Um, the I just noticed that um, the happy ending to that when, when there's this person that you mentioned out here. Okay. Yeah. If they have got in them too, then a little more of that. That, that, that love is a little more genuine than maybe the next person mm. out there, the next Joe Schmo out there that you might want to talk to. And if you pay attention with the brain God gave you, you, he can help you judge who to talk to and who not to talk to. Right, going back to that. Yeah, one of the, one of the most amazing word, two words that I have ever heard and that has ever helped me on my healing journey, me too. I open up and I'm talking and I'm sharing and that other guy in that group says, me too. You mean I'm not the only one? I'm no longer in isolation. There's somebody else who gets it. Me too. Now, we've read the Bible. We've heard the Bible saying that God, Jesus, was afflicted, like we're afflicted. He understands our tribulations. He's been through what we've been through. Did Jesus ever watch pornography? It wasn't created yet. But when we experience that connection horizontally, someone saying me too, that helps us understand how Jesus can say me too. Seth, and then we'll get back to our lesson. Jesus experienced lust though, which is close enough. 
Well said. Yeah, uh, a desire for selfish whatever to the, to the ex whatever you know. Sarah's gonna blow. <laughs> and he interacts with prostitutes, you right? Did. Like not in that way, but like just on a day to day, sure. you know, dealing with situations. So you you gotta remember too that in in Jesus' perfection, he prom the he probably had the ultimate empathy and the ultimate perfect clear imagination so he could probably see what they were talking about as they spoke about it and everybody knows what's in here is usually what you see if you don't look out and you're in your head uh yeah real quick and then we'll get back to us he had the choice to go to the temples the pagan temples and see it live that was the lure of the young folks at that time, was to go to the pagan temples and just watch. Fundamentally, though, because we're not talking about if Jesus or if he didn't, wasn't exposed to unwanted sexual behavior, pornography, or prostitution. Fundamentally behind all of that, we're talking about selfishness. I'm going to take care of me. However, I'm going to take care of me. Damn the consequences. Jesus was tempted with that when he was 40 days in the wilderness. Satan said, make bread you haven't eaten for 40 days. Garden of Gethsemane, before he was crucified, save yourself. That's how Jesus, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what the symptom is, Jesus can relate with the underlying condition of fear and selfishness. So we go to step six. Be entirely ready to have God remove all your defects of character. What does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to you? Be ready for God to remove your defects of character. Joe, anything? What do you think? Well, you gotta. It's easier to just talk about. It's, it's so. It's, it's just so much in the heart and the mind. This step. Um, you can write down that I'm selfish, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this and that. But you know, you then as you're you know, something that I you know, share with some friends this morning, it's a the Ellen White quote. Um, you know, it's something you gotta the first time the temptation comes, meet it in such a decided manner that it will not be refuted. It's the simplest thing, whether it's an addiction or just a behavior trait that you have. My, my, my worst defect of character has been and probably always will be is judging. Mm -hmm. I don't know that person in that car next to me or I don't know that person sitting across from me or that person in the store. Man, I'm already starting to pick them apart. So praying, God, let me look at this person as an honest person. And you know, an old thing that was real cliche during the late 80s and 90s, what would Jesus do? That's so true. How am I going to react to this situation? How am I going to react to this person? That that whatever's happening, and that's where you have to have God truly. You truly have to act Christ-like to the best of your ability to handle the situation. So, to me, again, you can write down a whole list of defects of character. You're this, 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 but you got to true. You got to live it too. 
So can you t can in, can any of us do this step, or any of the previous steps? Can it, can any of us do this step in isolation? Mm -hmm. no. Not at all, because it's in that safe community where someone comes up to you and says, "You're really being selfish right now." How so? Well, you're talking the entire time and not letting anybody else share. Or whatever it could be. It's in that community that your trusted friends, that community, that safe community, actually, it's like it's a blind spot, right? Points out to you, mirrors back to you, and you're like, oh, I didn't know I was. And that's how that process starts. Seth, and then we'll keep going. Would this step, uh, this question, part of this step might, this step might have more than one, there's like sub steps. Would part of the step be like an attitude thing? Like, because like that's one part where you don't need to be in a community necessarily to fix your attitude. You know, it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like a... Yeah, a lot of hands went up at that. I think there's a lot of people going to debate you on that one. Do you hold on, hold on, we got some hands up. Let's go Lola, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, when I read that, like, be entirely ready for God to remove all your defects of character, it, to me it's like saying, make room. Mm. Like, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of the concept of, you know, you're a single person and you want to get married, then you, you have an apartment and you have an extra nightstand over there because that's going to be your partner on that side of the bed someday. Okay. Or if you want a family, well, then you make sure you have two rooms in your house at least so that you can grow your family you okay. know, or, or that sort of thing. It's kind of the same idea of make the space. Mm. For that to happen. Hmm. Yeah, make it real brief because I want to try to get through the rest of it. You ready for the sentence? You are in a community if you're walking with God. Because God will point out your issues. And you will be impressed by your interactions with people yep. as to how people will take you. You can see the scowl on their face, you can see the radiant smile on their face. There you go. Yep. That doesn't lie. Yeah, well said. Sarah, real quick, and then we'll go back. So step seven, humbly ask him to remove your shortcomings. That one sounds probably the easiest of all of them. Please, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Take it away from me. Is it that easy? No? Because we're selfish. A couple hard no's, right? We're selfish, we're selfish and we don't want to give anything up. Yeah, Louise. I think that would be the time when it's like Paul, to, when he asked, take this door from me, Yeah. if not your will, not mine. So there's a really interesting thing that's involved with this process right here. Humbly asking to remove your shortcomings. You and a lot of people, I, I know people who love Jesus, have given their heart to Jesus, but they're still doing a lot of damaging behaviors and more behaviors. And they think, they believe that because they're still doing these behaviors, that they're actually not saved. 
Because to stop the behavior would then be the evidence that you're safe, right? But here's the, here's the truth of the matter. You're dealing with the brain. So just like when I was a little kid and my dad would slam the door, that started creating a neural pathway in my brain that would react to a trigger, the door slamming in the house. God, I don't want to act like this. Please take it away. The next day, Sarah comes in, shuts the door. I'm right back where I started. God, I don't like this. What's happening? What's happening? Anybody know? You're continuing with the same pathway, and what you need to do is create new pathways. There you go. you got to create new pathways in your brain. It's called neuroplasticity. Your brain needs to change. The brain, just like my bicep, can grow and change. But it takes effort and work. I gotta work at it. It's not gonna happen overnight. In fact, if I don't ever work my bicep, what's gonna happen to it? Your brain's the same way. And it will always default to what's the most comfortable. What do you think's the most comfortable for my brain? To stay like hypervigilant in anxiety when the door shuts. That's the most comfortable, why? Because it's always been like that since I was a kid. So this is where surrendering your, your will and asking God to help you with your shortcoming comes into play because you get into a community process where you're practicing and you're learning new brain ways, new way to think. Man, the first time you know Joe goes to physical therapy, I'm gonna pick on you after your surgery. It's gonna suck, you know, because of your recovery with that. But over time, over time, it gets stronger and stronger. Pretty soon, he's back on his feet, figuratively and literally. So step eight. This is the hard one. This is the hard one. Make a list of all persons you have harmed and be willing to make amends to each one. Why is that important? Why does God care about that? Why is this crucial to our salvation, our healing? Please. When there's group people, kind of like that telephone game, eventually everybody will know it. If everybody... So we're not talking about learns. gossip. We're not talking about no. gossip. No. Just... Like the truth and spreading the truth around starting with, you know, the way we're supposed to spread the good news. Okay, well, that's just not talking about good news. It's just talking about making amends because you hurt somebody. Look, oh. Because it sets you free. Thank you, Darian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so both of you say more about that, yeah. Well, because it's, you're, it's, you're trapped with that. That's in your head. I will be completely content doing whatever, and then all of a sudden something happens, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I done that. Yeah. Or all, you know what I mean? Or whatever. It just comes back to you, and it's like, it's like a trap. It's a prison. So when we talk about our character, and we learn about the truth about God's character, living with a, living from a perspective of making amends, what does that show about your character? What does that reveal about the kind of person you are? Changed. Changed. Sensitive. Caring. Humility. Humility. Thank you. Yeah. Humility, Sarah. And it also goes back to that idea that, like, if, you know, as human beings, right, we kind of have this list of things that have been done to us, right, whether purposely or, um, you know, not, you know, accidentally. So if you have somebody that comes to you and be like, choice 
So then you have created a more genuinely loving relationship with that other person simply because, like, you know, they've, they've had that in their head, right? Like, they've been, been living with that, and then you come to them and share that, like, you recognize that what you did was harmful and, you know, painful and all this kind of thing. And so it just creates that ability for you to actually experience loving relationships. And I, and I say... Uh, let me make a comment, and then we'll keep going for our lesson here. Jesus says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love is others-centered. Not selfishness, not self-seeking, others-centered. To live your life making amends, having that attitude, is others-centered. It's taking responsibility for your actions. It's saying, I hurt you. It's, it's focusing on the impact I'm having on somebody else. And it's saying, you know what? I hurt you. Here's how I hurt you. And I'm really sorry about that. How can I make it right? That's love. That's a character in harmony with God. That's an evidence that you're on a saving relationship. Contrary, what's the other side of that? What does a selfish person, do they care if they hurt anybody? No. Nope. In fact, they'll try and behave in certain ways that will intentionally cause more pain than another person. The total opposite. Step nine. Make a direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when doing so would injure them or others. This is where things get really specific. I think, for me, step eight is talking about just a character, the way you live. Mm -hmm. Step nine comes after you've made that personal inventory, and now you're actually, you're exercising empathy, humility, humbleness, and you're coming to that specific person that you hurt. You're saying, I really hurt you when I lied to you about how much money I spent on my heart. Okay? I'm not making this up. This is a real situation between Sarah and I. I told Sarah I wasn't going to buy a Harley. I had no worry about it. A week later, I came home with a Harley Davidson in sidecar. $12,000 debt attached. That's a specific injury to trust and relationship. And so make amends and you, you got to specifically say how I harmed you. You can't sugarcoat that. You can't say, yeah, you know, I'm sorry for everything I did. Anybody do that to you guys? You get a text from somebody, I'm sorry if I ever hurt you. Just big blanket statement. Anybody get one of them? Sorry if I ever hurt you. Screw you, man. Like, does anybody say, oh, thank you. That was really meaningful. I really, thank you. No, that's like, dude, really? There's also the if in there. Yes. The if is still not taking responsibility. Yes, thank you. It's different if they said, I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Different I hurt story. you. Here's how I know I hurt you. Here's the details. Here's why I understand I hurt you, and I'm really sorry, and what can I do to make it better? Like, there's a step process through that. That sets us free. That sets you free. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory and promptly admit to wrongdoing, right? So you're seeing a shift. You're seeing a, I'm up against a wall. I need help. You're surrendering. You're doing some really hard work. You're kind of fixing the problems that were going on. And now you're growing and changing to living a new life. You're being recreated into a new character, a new way of living. 
You're not letting a backlog of problems build up, right? You're, you're living at the spear point. You're, you're moving forward. You're growing. Any thoughts? Step 11, seek through prayer to improve conscious contact with God, asking only for knowledge of his will for you and the power to carry that out. What's that mean? Please. Not just having a conversation with somebody, but listening, actively listening to God at the same time. Right. This is the opposite of like the once saved, always saved idea. Right? This is a, a consistent daily growth, a commitment to growth. Sarah? Uh, listen to learn, not listen to respond. Say that again? So listen to learn, not just listen to respond, right? Like a lot of conversations. Listen to learn, not to respond. That's a good quote. And then step 12, lastly, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, and this is what you were talking about, Louise, we carry this message to our circle of influence, to others, and we practice these principles in all we do. Can you be healthy? Can you eat healthy one day a week and be healthy? No. you got to eat healthy seven days a week to be healthy. And that's what this is talking about. Mm. It's a lifestyle. Healthful living, mm. going through these steps, and teaching others, sharing this through your example. I was talking with a friend of mine last night. He was on a trip to Fort Worth, Dallas area, and he was on the shuttle bus going back to the airport, and he shared this story, which was kind of really, really cool. Mm. And he said a stranger came up to him and said, you remind me of somebody. And, and my friend said, all right, I'll take the bait. Who? And the guy says, you remind me of Jesus. How would you respond if you were in that position? <laughs> someone come up to you and says, you remind me of someone. Exactly. Uh, thanks. <laughs> Total stranger. Who was doing what? Observing. Yeah. Observing. People watch. Mm -hmm. Observing. The greatest sermon, what's that quote? The greatest sermon I ever heard was not one I heard, but the one I watched or something like that. There's like this, I don't know, some quote about it. But, you know, it's pretty good. All of that being said, the healing model takes work. Healing's hard. Healing hurts. But Jesus is a healer. God is a healer. Does anybody here want to get better? Does anybody here struggle with something? It's like, why do I do that? I don't want to do that anymore. I want to get better. Guess what? God wants you to get better too. Jesus wants you to get better too. And it starts with the truth. That's where it starts. The truth about you, the truth about God, the truth about your relationships. You shall know the truth, the truth will set you free. So today, if you realize that you're sin set, Right? Selfish. There's selfishness in you. If you realize that, you're not doing well. 
Consider a relationship with Jesus that's built on trust and openness and understanding and let that vertical relationship with Jesus play out in a horizontal relationship with each other. Let's pray. God, come into our hearts. Thank you so much for this conversation, for everybody who contributed and just for the thoughts and the questions and the insights that were, were mulling around in our heads. Holy Spirit, thank you that you will take all of this and you'll develop it and you'll grow it. May it May it challenge us and encourage us to get into a community, to stay in a community, and to just keep growing, to keep opening our hearts to what you're trying to do in us. Thank you so much. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.